I'm making something that is not an imprint of my opinions. It's not what I think, you know. It's something that seriously creating an opportunity for people to think, creating a situation. That's, I think this is what the most important thing. Art really shouldn't convey messages. Art should actually create a vacuity, something, a little problem. Artists really muse so eloquently on just what it is their job consists of. Not so Brazilian artist Vic Muniz, who's a rare beast indeed, equally popular with critics and the public, a truly international name, and a man who wasn't born into art, but has had the artistic somehow thrust upon him. Muniz's maternal grandmother was an important influence on the young man trying to read, write, be good, but also be interesting. And it seems she shaped more than just a precocious streak and an ability to express himself. As Muniz will tell you, his break, going to New York City to be an artist after making adverts in Brazil, happened in the strangest of Greekly mythical ways. After sculpture, our artist became fascinated with the documenting of these works and the photography of things, both obviously artistic and not. Maybe they're even better than the real thing. His current practice consists of images made of a million other things, and his work is in public museums and private collections across the world. Vic, thank you so much for joining us today in a cold and snowy Paris. We'll go back to the beginning of your career and your life. It's been so varied. You've lived all over the place, produced such amazing works. But what about the last thing you made? What was the last thing that you would consider a work that you finished? I've been working on this series called Verso for the last, I would say, 16 years. You know, I've been, I set myself this really ridiculous task of making facsimiles, but photorealistic copies of the world's most famous paintings. So I did the Mona Lisa, Starry Night, Demoiselle d'Avignon, Anatomy Lesson, you name it. So I've been working all over the world asking museums to let me see their back of the paintings and then I make perfect copies of it. It's a pretty crazy process because for the Mona Lisa, for instance, we worked with the Louvre for like over a year and we had to buy a tree in the south of the United States to get to be able to get the right wood to cut it. You take it from a very forensic place. You know, it's hard enough to figure out what went on with the front of a painting. But uh, when the artist finishes a painting, you know, that surface is supposed, is supposed to remain exactly how it is after it varnished for millennia. The back of the painting, however, it suffers an enormous amount of changes, so it, uh, different conservation attitudes. Some people think it should be like this, some people think it should be like that. And people seriously don't care about the back of an image. They just uh, they drill uh, holes in it, they put uh, staples, they write on it. And these are like multi-million dollar objects. Uh, the idea of like copying every single mark and sort of the back of the painting tells a story. You know, what happened to that painting, what he went through to actually survive the test of history and become a re relevant object. Also, in the case of the Mona Lisa, for instance, it's packed with electronics. The monitor, a, a gap that uh, it's been fixed in the 18th century with a butterfly joint. So if that gap widens, somebody gets an SMS. So it's, uh, the, the Mona Lisa has an IP address. I love that. So we actually uh, worked with the guy who made the electronics for the Joconda and asked him to make a perfect replica for us, a working replica. So when we show these works, we're just, we're just leaning against the wall. It, it looks like an exhibition that hasn't uh, been hung yet. Then we start looking at the labels and by the clues you get, just from looking at the back, you realize, uh, you know, you're looking at objects that shouldn't be in there, you know, turning against the wall. 
there's something about the portrait of Dorian Gray, like the front of the painting is the man and the painting in the attic is the back. There is something exactly. decaying and telling a, a far richer maybe story than the front of that painting. Well, yeah, the Dorian Gray, it's actually a really amazing, I hadn't thought of that, but it's a pretty good analogy. Uh, there's an aging part, you know, the, a part that's uh, continuously evolving, which is the back. I would actually extend the focus beyond the works and try to talk about what makes a picture hang in a museum, you know, and yeah. try to understand it from everything, from like a patronage, the curatorial practices, and why, why some works are hanging on museum walls instead of others. And you're commenting on the kind of fetishization of these images, right? Because you're remaking these images yeah. as objects, as kind of whatever. Although they're, although they're artworks by a famous, an internationally famous artist such as yourself, they are also kind of fetishized common or garden images, right? They're as easy to look at on the internet as they are in the Louvre or in the Guggenheim or in the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna, I suppose. But when, when they are physical, you know, they're, they're objects, they have a physical presence and you're near them, they become sort of an evidence yeah. of something. Uh -huh. You become an accomplice to that experience of being with the... A lot of the, the people who go into these museums, and I've been showing them in museums, for instance, in, in The Hague, mm -hmm. and they go into a room and all of a sudden there's all these paintings with the fronts turned to the wall. They see the backs and they, they immediately taken by a feeling that they shouldn't be there. You know, it's like, a, oh, this place, it's, it's not done yet or yeah. something. Sort of yeah, and that, that's the beginning. It looks like they're already sort of like uh, uh, doing something wrong, which is a great uh, beginning to look at <laughs> anything, you know. Yeah. And all of a sudden they say, oh, well, let me take a look. So they try to look in the front. They can't yeah. because they're precisely at the angle that you cannot get to, to see anything but the back. And they're very convincing, you know. They're yeah. absolutely convincing. We have to do them perfectly. It's really it's becoming very obsessive. And I, I work with a team of very obsessive individuals. I'm not that obsessive myself. I'm more distracted. So I, ha I need the help of pe very focused people to be able to carry this test through. But this is, yeah, this is the last way. I'm very excited about this because we're going to show it next to the real, the actual work. So it, it's... Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah, it's going to be in the back of the, the actual work. So it's, people are going to be able to see what the, the painting looks and these things that normally guarded behind glass and they have this overly fetishized like the Mona Lisa or the Kiss, when you get to see just, it's like seeing a naked body, you know, just seeing the corpse or the, the, the physical presence of an artwork, which is something that uh, we don't get to think about when we're looking at an image, you know. You don't you know that the physicality of an image actually plays an enormous uh, role in the way we think about images. And normally we just uh, stay on the surface of it and see what, you know, what it means. And we, we, we get enough information that we don't think about what's making it hang. And do you, do you have that feeling that you want to reach out and touch it? There is something physical about it that you there is you know when you, you see something very famous you want to get people want to get as close to the Mona Lisa as possible it is. obviously they want to have their photograph taken with it they want to see it it's like coming to Paris and taking a photograph of the Eiffel Tower of an image I know that you have appropriated because it is a big stereotypical chocolate box image yeah. and you're very interested in what's you know, I think you're very interested in in those sorts of things there is something you were thinking about these funny thoughts before the selfie was ever invented. These ideas, what was the point of another image of the Eiffel Tower, for example? Am I right? Well, you know what? The image of the Eiffel Tower, you know, beyond the billions of, of copies that you have, it's an image that's already in your mind. You know, if I say to you, Paris, 
the picture that's going to come first in your mind is the picture of a postcard. Mm-hmm. Although the experience of Paris, you know, my 15-minute walk from my, the gallery to, to the studio right now, mm-hmm. it was a completely different thing. It was a very fragmented, had little bits and pieces, and it was, it was a very different experience as that of thinking of the city as a postcard. So, you know, for I've been almost 30 years, you know, I've been making art, showing my work, and, and teaching art. I've always confronted with these questions from either museum visitors or students. The question is like, what is art? You know, and I, I've toyed with this question for a long time, trying to have a relatively uh, simple explanation to give to people because... Usually you ask this question in very, you know, uh, not the right situation. But, um, <laughs> when you're ordering a beer, for example, exactly, and you haven't quite got the time. In the bathroom with somebody, <laughs> you know, next to you, and they go like, yeah, what's art, you know? But I, uh, I got to a conclusion that, you know, art, and this is probably, has been consistently since the Paleolithic period, you're talking about, you know, over 50,000 years ago, has been always the evolution of the interface between mind and matter. The artist, what he does, he improves, updates, and meditates upon the idea that you have a world that is inside of you, and there's a world that surrounds you. And then how do you connect these two things? You know, And, and I think it was through representation, which is uh, one of the you know, most common uses of, of artistic expression. Artists really invented all the ways in which man connects to its surrounding nature, to its extensions, and also, consequently, to other men. But I think this is a relatively simple way to answer it, but it's very effective. Art is the, yeah, is the evolution <laughs> yeah. of the interface between mind and matter. The problem yeah. with this answer that it can be used for religious and for science, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which are similar disciplines. You're thinking about, you know, how you connect to what's not you, you know. But they are just asking the questions and look the same questions and look at it from different ways. I come from a very poor family from uh, you know southeastern Brazil. I was born in São Paulo. My father was a waiter. My mother was a switchboard operator for the local phone company, and I was raised by my grandmother. She taught me how to read in a very special way because she taught herself how to read. Nobody knows how she did it. She never been to school. Uh, she decoded her children's books. By the time I entered elementary school. I was already reading chapter books. I was, uh, you know, reading Jules Verne, things like uh, Stevenson, things like that. This was kind of under the wing of your your grandmother. Exactly. It took me three years to be able to write anything because she taught me how to read by memorizing the entire shapes, the entire shapes of words. So (laughs) I am a self-thought dyslexic person, you know. By the time I I had to relearn how to read through the phonosyllabic method, it took me a long time and, and... when I took dictation, I instead of um, writing the words, sometimes I, I created a sort of a shorthand system that not only made my copy books look like the Egyptian wing of the Metropolitan Museum, <laughs> but also got me into creating little drawings. I was secretive about my drawing. I, was, right. I didn't show it to anybody because I, I was a little bit ashamed of it. By the time a teacher of mine uh, got me to participate in the, this uh, festival, you know, and I won a first prize, I hadn't met other kids who were like me. And I remember this was probably one of the happiest days in my life. I, I was a Sunday with kids that were just like me. They liked drawing. They liked making puppets. They liked making little objects. I was 14. It was past the time to do that kind of thing. And I never stopped. Drawing is like losing weight. You know, you, you learn a lot initially and you improve 
a lot, and then you incrementally you start making less and less progress, and you start thinking about it. You know more than actually drawing. The, the frustration that you're not improving more actually gives room to more conceptual thinking. That led me to do a lot of research in perception. It was very scarce. There was very little literature about perception and psychology in Brazil at that time. You know, we're talking about you know the the seventies. We were living under military dictatorship. It was it was tricky. You know, and I think that has a lot to do with my creative processes as well. During a military dictatorship, you cannot say what you want to say, and you, all the information that you receive has to be carefully uh, filtered, and you have to be very pragmatic about the information that gets to you. As a result, you know, I, I haven't been a victim of uh, the military dictatorship, a direct victim. I wasn't tortured or anything, but I'm a product of it. Uh, I am... Uh, so you, you're still questioning the idea of, in, in, in this Verso series and in some of your other works as well, you're obviously still questioning the, the veracity, the point, the truth of the, of the image. Because you cannot say what you want to say very directly, you become very good at making metaphors and you're becoming very aware, very aware of the elasticity mm-hmm. of language, how you can actually say things in many possible ways. You know, Brazil or in places where they have that kind of uh, political climate, there was a lot of poetry because, you know, there's one way when you really start playing and and figuring out, and also also a lot of satire, when you really, you play with language, you know, and to figure out how to shortcut. They're very good at metaphor. And the other thing you become, because of the medium uh, environment that you're living on, you become extremely pragmatic and also cynical. So uh, even today, you know, I love to see commercials, you know, because I know how it, it is made of. So I want to ask you about this. I wanted to ask you, I wanted to go back to, to Sao Paulo, or maybe this was in New York after you moved there, but you started working on billboards, am I right? You worked in advertising and you improved yeah, the, the legibility of billboards for brands. For, for... I was going to get to yeah. that. I, I tried twice to enter the University of Sao Paulo for study psychology, and I failed twice because I wasn't a very good student. It was a very broad test. Instead, I took a half scholarship in, a, in another school for communication arts with focus on advertising. I, I just liked advertising so much. On my first year, I started conducting a, a self-assignment. I was very frustrated with the fact that I could never read a single billboard in the city. It was so uh, obvious that yeah. somebody needed to do something about it. And then I went to a company called Alvo, means Target. It was the only two companies that uh, worked with a billboard placement in the city, and they gave me a job. At the end of a year that I worked there, uh, the Association of Advertising of Sao Paulo decided to grant me a, a, a trophy like a, say that for what I had done. And I quit the school right there because I had already a job. Uh, the day that I went to get this uh, trophy, I, I put on my tuxedo for the first time in my life, and I went to this party. I didn't know anybody. I just said, thank you, got the thing, and was leaving. When I was driving in front of the event, somebody stopped my car and uh, asked me to help. This woman said, there's a man killing my fiancé in the street. They were in the party before, so they were all wearing tuxedos. They look, it looks like a, a, a James Bond scene, you know. Reservoir uh, talks or something. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they were, there was one guy actually hitting the other guy with brass knuckles, leaning on a car. When I came in, I pushed the, the guy who was assaulting the other guy. He ran away. And the other guy, I said, okay, okay. He went to his car. When I was about to get into my car, 
I heard an explosion. And then when I, before I realized I was on the floor, the person who was being hit went to his car, picked up a gun, and decided to shoot the first person wearing a tuxedo he saw. And that was you? It was me. You know, luckily it wasn't wow. fatal, as you can tell. What an amazing and awful thing. So what was the upshot of this? Well, the upshot of this is that the person, the first thing I, I, I saw after I woke up after two days, it was my aggressor. So his face was full of bandages. So I woke up, and then I thought I had died and gone to mummy hell, you know? <laughs> so, and he was asking for forgiveness. He said, I'm very sorry, I'm very sorry. I, I wasn't seeing anything. So he offered to pay for the whole thing. His father was very rich. And he offered me a sum of money, which I used in 1982 to come to the United States, buy a ticket to come to U.S., Basically, if I hadn't been shot, I wouldn't be talking to you today. So the reason I'm here is because I got shot in the leg. That's quite amazing. So this sent you off to New York. And I know you're a fan of American artist Jackson Pollock, whose work you've referenced, and Ed Roshay, whose work you've referenced. The great hope of America kind of heading west and, and also automobile culture and all the rest of it. I mean, although I'm a Brazilian artist, I have to say that uh, my artistic education, you know. I'm, I'm very, very influenced by people who produced art during my lifetime yeah. in America and in Europe. I think uh, I would be fair to say that, you know, both artists from the 60s, I'm talking about Warhol, especially Warhol and Boys, mm -hmm. you know. And, and it's funny, I, I use this, uh, this, this two cards because uh, uh, Warhol for its iconography and Boyce for its materiality. You know, uh -huh. the idea of ritualizing material in the picture is, or in, in the work is very interesting. That uh, sort of like a, uh, an animism, a comeback to animism. Uh -huh. I, I like the idea of the artist as a shaman. I'm unashamed to point out to the relevance of my profession. I mean, mm. say, it looks like when you, people think you're an artist, immediately people start dissing you. It's, it feels like you're doing something that is pretty or something that hangs on top of a sofa. No. You have to really think hard that, you know, maybe some 50,000 years ago, some dude walks inside a cave, sees something that looks like something that he saw before, and, you know, it, says it was not just something. It was maybe a bison. You know, it was, a, it was an animal. And then not any animal, a bison. And then he started thinking of a bison that he hunted in the last winter when everybody was very hungry. And then he looks at it, oh, it's just some cracks on the wall. And then he goes there and he completes that image with maybe a missing a tusk or, 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 a, or a tail. And all those memories come back. This is the first artist, you know. But the invention of representation is perhaps the greatest achievement of humanity since the control of fire. You know, it was because of that, because of that first picture, that he realized that he could summon an image or the spirit of something that wasn't there or that happened, happened in another time to that same room. And not only that, he could share the same image, those feelings, those memories with his other tribesmen. Because of representation, we were able to actually continue our experience or actually preserve our experience for, for future generations. You know, we, we created the idea of posterity. Mm -hmm. And in, consequently, history, you know, uh, and, and the idea of actually being able to believe in something beyond ourselves, you know. So we're pretty important. When, whenever I think, you know, what, what is this stuff that we do that is so important? How can you manifest this importance the idea of art as, as something that is able to humanize, to give it a, a different dimension. I read 
a lot when I was a kid and I was inspired by my grandmother and then I opened an entire world, a universe for a kid that lived in a small house in the middle of a slum. For me, that was extremely important. But I don't think it's about somebody putting an arm on you and actually teaching you. It's actually about somebody showing you something and respecting your opinion. Uh, my parents, for instance, were people who do not uh, have that much experience with art or they, they weren't exposed to it. They feel intimidated to walk into a museum or an art gallery or a concert hall. Uh, but the fact that because they, they think that they don't know enough, and there's nothing to do with knowing. Actually, there's something to do with enjoying or... or to do with liking. That's what Andy Warhol said. He said oh, it was about, art is about liking things, right? Yeah. But you need some confidence to do that when you're surrounded by people that are better dressed or, or louder with their opinions. Right? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, yeah. the cultural environment does not foster that kind of uh, confidence. Mm-hmm. These uh, museums and galleries are places where there's a sort of like a, an, an obvious expertise behind them. And, and it's, it's usually that's a little bit rubbed into the visitors. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I hate, uh, for instance, art exhibitions that make me feel when I leave that I'm stupid, you know. Yeah. And I, I understand that, you know, what other people feel because of that. I... Uh, have made a point for many, many years not to make art for a specific type of public. And the fact that it is much more challenging conceptually and intellectually to actually make art that has a, a more a widened appeal, a, a wider appeal, you know, something I, I am satisfied when an exhibition of mine has the same power over the museum director as it does to the people who do the cleaning in the museum. You know, I I really take pride on that, and it it is hard to do that. Before we finish, Vic, take us quickly to your studio. I presume you have one in New York and one in Rio as well, maybe maybe elsewhere. What does your studio look like? Is it a paint-spattered classic artist studio? Is it full of computers, and is it a bit like a laboratory? What's your working space like? Oh, I have to say that it changes continuously because I'll be working a scale of something that's like, uh, you know, 10 by 10 inches for a while or, or I'll be working on, on a much grander scale or sometimes doing even uh, earthworks, what I did with, which I did. What I realized that every time I changed the working space, that had an effect on the scale of my production. So what I try to think of uh, work independently of where I'm going to do it. So I've been able to actually work in iron mines in uh, central and northern Brazil, where I did with the use of retro diggers. And then I photographed it with helicopters, works that were about uh, uh, a little short of a kilometer long. I did 36 earthworks there. Yeah, these are incredible. Yeah, and I I did. I worked at MIT working on things that are like smaller than a grain of dust. So I was making etchings on, on little specks of dust on the, the angstrom scale. Uh-huh. I cannot have a studio. I have either to go to a lab to do this or I need other people. But my working space is, is also, I say, is as experimental as the work itself. It's not a kind of home from home. It's not a place where you kind of no, can be a bit like a hermit. You, it can be kind of anywhere. that you can. The two, all places have one thing in common. They have a day bed and a library, mm-hmm. you know, and a computer connection. This is something that I need. And the library uh, is like half of it is art, half of it is science, you know. For the last six years, you know, I've been living in Rio. I used to be more in Brooklyn. And then there's another dimension to this, uh, to, to running two studios simultaneously, is that I, I have a, a, a network connection 
that is continuous. So I, I spend my entire day in New York and in Rio simultaneously. So I've been working through Skype and then sometimes making work through the internet. So you're just talking away and someone on the other end is, do, is helping out yeah, on another it's, project. It, and and I ha- exactly. And this is, I have to say to you, it's not something that I'm saying it works. I'm trying, you know. Actually, you know, I've been able to produce... I think Andy Warhol would have been very proud of that. Yeah, I've been able to <laughs> produce a good number of very successful works so far. It is hard, you know. It's something that you have to learn to do, to, to, to work with that this sort of disconnection. And, uh, and besides, you know, there's the fact that, you know, if you're a contemporary artist working today, uh, you have to spend a lot of time outside the studio just traveling and talking and, and showing work. And that can be distracting, or sometimes you can make something out of it, and, and then that can be useful as well. And do you like talking about your work? Does it help sometimes define what the work is or remind you of the creative impulse that made it in the first place when you have to talk to journalists and curators and in your galleries around the world? For 10 years, I, uh, for almost 10 years, I worked as a teacher you know, in New York, and I missed that because uh, you have a responsibility towards your students, and that forces you to put your ideas in order. I think when you do lectures, too, you're also challenged by the public, you know, with uh, questions. Or, or And often and often, and I wish it was more often, you get questions that sometimes make you think about your working ways that you didn't think before. I think artists make only half of the work. The other half is what the viewer brings into that encounter. That's why the artists have to be very mindful of what the viewer is bringing. So you have to respect the visual baggage of the viewer. The best comment I've heard about my work didn't come from a critic, didn't come from a museum curator. It came from an a airline desk person. I was flying out of uh, Rio and I had done a show about four years before. And the woman said, Are you, you fake Muniz? I said, yes. And she said, oh, I have to say something to you. you know, uh, My job at the airline took a toll on my family life. And for that reason, I lost the custody of my daughter. And for years, I could not talk to her. And then one day, I decided to go to your show. And for the first time, we had something that both me and her could talk about it with equal amount of authority. And she had tears in her eyes. She said, you know, because of your show, we started talking again. And I really thank you for that. I said, I, and I said to her, this is, was totally unintentional. I, I could never think my work could do anything. But sometimes you're so focused in what your artist is supposed to do. In the end, the fact that she said that made me feel very happy because I'm making something that is not an imprint of my opinions. It's not what I think, you know. It's something that seriously... Creating a, an opportunity for people to think, yeah. creating a situation. That's, I think this is what the most important thing. Art really shouldn't uh, convey messages. Art should actually create a, a vacuity, something, a little problem that makes people think about it. So you can fill in the gap yourself. Exactly. But in a world of happy accidents, I think that's as good a place to end it. Uh, Vic Minis, thank you very much indeed. Well, thanks a lot. Happy to be here. Vicman is there talking to us near his Paris gallery, Zipass. And amazingly, there will be sizable shows of Muniz's work across the world this summer, from Weimar to Tokyo. And his website, of course, will tell you more. The Big Interview is produced by Guy Lutz and Yulene Goffin and edited by Cassie Galpin. And I've been Robert Bound. Thank you very much for tuning in.